The content of Justin Miller's story could be traumatic for some listeners. If you feel triggered, please contact me and I will be happy to speak to you for support and I will help you find resources if that's what you need. Please remember Justin Miller's app, which is Objective Zero. This is exactly why it was created. You can reach out to other veterans and other military members for support. Thank you. Hello, this is Jill Garvin. I am the Director of Psychological Health for the 102nd Intelligence Wing. This is our monthly podcast where we are discussing different topics around wellness. If you would like to be on the podcast or you have any suggestions, please contact me. I'm in the global or you can contact me at 508-237-6652. Today, we had our tactical pause day. We had an incredible speaker. I can't even express um, what a, a great morning we had and uh, our speaker was Justin Miller. He is the co-founder and deputy executive director of Objective Zero, which we'll talk about. He is originally from West Virginia. Justin enlisted as an infantryman in the U.S. Army in April of 2003. He served for 11 years deploying twice to Iraq, and he served as a rifleman with the 1st Battalion, uh, 506th Infantryman Regiment, and was an infantry scout and sniper team leader with the 2nd Battalion, 12th Infantry Regiment, and was also an infantry squad leader with the 3rd Battalion, 7th Infantry Regiment at Fort, Fort Stewart, Georgia. Justin also served as a military recruiter in Greensburg, Pennsylvania. He has an Associates of Art from Columbia Southern University. He's always willing to share his inspirational story, which he did with us this morning. Um, I don't want to take up too much time because I, I want him to share with us some more. I, I We got so much wonderful feedback. I had to rush him along this morning after he spoke because everybody wanted to thank him and share what a profound effect that he he had on them this morning. You know, I heard things like, you're the best speaker I've ever heard and um, thank you for being so vulnerable and, and sharing, sharing your story with us. And we broke out into small groups and I went around and sat in with the small groups and people were really willing to share and to be vulnerable with each other and um, I really think Justin set the tone for that. Uh, I also heard many people share about, because um, he talked a lot about uh, his family and um, how it impacted his family and also um, how his, how his family really helped him and how his family got help, help as well. So anyway, I'm going to let him talk a little bit and, and ask him some questions along the way. So thank you very much, Justin, for being here, coming all the way from Charleston. That's where you live currently. Uh, yeah, thank you. What was I want you to share your story with us again, if you don't mind, and, and just kind of some of the things that you also heard today. Not necessarily to have you brag about it, but but it, it really did make an impact, and and I think it's important for us to hear because we are trying to shift the culture. We are trying to do something um, different here, and we are are we are trying to increase our 
our connectedness and, and our sense of belonging here at the 102nd. And I really think that you facilitated that this morning. Thank you. Well, first off, thanks for having me. Um, <clears throat> it's been a fun journey. Uh, it was very exciting this morning. You know, I've spoken quite a few times now. And um, <clears throat> having two packed back-to-back -back auditoriums, um, you could just feel the energy. You could feel the, you know, they were, they were locked in, they were listening. You could tell that they were really paying attention. Um, you know, usually when I speak, I can see, you know, I usually see one or two of them in the crowd that are really leaning forward and really catching in, you know, teary eyes. Um, and I usually have to avoid looking at those ones because uh, you know, sometimes it's a struggle to keep myself together uh, during some of my, some parts of my story. And um, this morning uh, there's quite a few parts that were really challenging because there was more teary-eyed and more emotions going on in, in that auditorium than uh, I was used to. There were a lot, yes. Um, <clears throat> So it was, uh, it was great, you know. Uh, so, you know, my story started um, with 9-11, you know, my senior year. Um, I walked into English class, and, you know, I seen the first building was burning. And I was watching, the, we saw the second plane crash, and that's when my teacher just turned around, looked at me, and just started crying. And uh, I remember I just got so angry, you know, I just... Um, I just wanted to, I needed to do something about it. I knew, I knew that somebody had to step up. And, um, you know, as a, a child that had a lot of, uh, difficult situations that I, I went through, you know, parents divorcing at a very young age and having step parents, uh, throughout my childhood and, um, dad you know having drug and alcohol problems uh introducing us into the drug and alcohol you know at a, at a very young age you know being physically and verbally abusive um and then going to prison uh, right at that time when you know a kid really needs his dad you know i was seven years old came out when i was 10 and um when he came out that you know i would i was willing to do anything just to be able to connect and bond with him and unfortunately, it came to the drinking and the partying. Um, and uh, actually joining the military was, you know, I was trying to gain my dad's approval. You know, he, him and I were in a scuffle one day. We were fighting in the front yard. And, you know, I pinned him down, and he, he told me to hit him. And I told him I, I wouldn't because, you know, I said, you're my dad. I'm not going to hit you. And he threw me off of him and he said, you know what, you're, you're a freaking idiot. He goes, if I could do it all over again, I'd join the service and I'd have got the heck out of this town. Hmm. So, you know what, Dad, I said, that's probably the smartest thing you've ever said to me. And I uh, called my mom and said, I need, a, I need to come home. I need a place to live. She said, I never kicked you out. <laughs> you, you chose to go to your dad. She said, come on home. Uh, that was Monday afternoon. And I called my recruiter Friday. After I called the Air Force recruiter, but 
torn. <clears throat> they were home for we the day. You. Yeah. yeah, you know, three o'clock on a Friday afternoon. It <laughs> <laughs> uh, went to voicemail, and I knew at that moment that if I didn't make a decision to go do this, that I would have been following the exact trail my dad did. I would have ended up, you know, probably ended up dead or in prison, to be honest with you. Um, so after uh, I left the message for the Air Force, um, I ended up calling the Army, and it rang once, and Army recruiter picked up, and it went from there. You know, he picked me up Monday, signed, you know, did all my paperwork, went to the hotel that night, and Tuesday signed my contract and never looked back. Um, joined as an infantryman, you know, because I wanted to fight. I wanted to, I loved to shoot. You know, I was always a really great shot. You know, my dad always told me as a kid I should be a sniper uh, because I could shoot really well. <clears throat> um, and, you know, and I thought maybe if I joined the military and I joined the infantry and I became a sniper, you know, I thought maybe that would get my dad's approval. I thought maybe that would help fix my dad, change my dad. Change the relationship. Yep, yeah. yep. I thought it would maybe get him to sober up, mm-hmm. maybe get him to clean up and not be such a jerk, you know, a waste yeah. of life uh, at that time. Thought maybe he would clean up and give my sister the dad that she needed because uh, she's 10 years younger than me. And, um, you know, I came home after basic training same issues, you know, turn around and went to war, uh, went through some pretty crazy crap, you know, hit by, hit by an IED that, that knocked me out, you know, uh, vehicle direct behind me about 20 meters got hit and it took the whole front end of the vehicle off and caved in all the windows and, uh, sent one of our guys home that, then <laughs> The kid came to our unit a month before we left Korea, straight from basic training. And we got to, got to Iraq in August and in September, I think it's September 10th, he was already sent home. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, we had all kinds of craziness going on. And, uh, my platoon sergeant turned around and left me behind in the house where I, I literally had to fight and, you know, hit people with my weapon as hard as I could in the ribs and the chest just to shove them away to to create space just so they couldn't grab me. How did they leave you? Um, you know, I've always wondered that, you know, um, and it's taken me years to kind of get it all and piece it all together. Uh, <clears throat> now it all makes sense. You know, we did. We just got hit by an IED and it was, you know, IEDs aren't it wasn't a small one, you know, it was big and it knocked me out and, you know, whether it knocked him, you know, my, my platoon sergeant out or not, it was enough that it rang all of our bells. And, um, so they pulled me out of the gun and put me down as the driver and we went back to the blast site and there was a, an Iraqi police truck sitting there in an alleyway we said well let's go uh let's go talk to them and see if they saw anything well as we pulled in towards them they took off running 
So well, they're saying this isn't right. <clears throat> so we started chasing them, and uh, they made a left. And as we were making the left, they handed a camera off to a kid, and the kid ran left, and they took off right. So <clears throat> we went after the kid, and uh, didn't find the kid, but we found the camera. And then we went to the Iraqi police station. Um, after some extensive uh, interrogation, you know, and questioning, we were able to find the two guys. Uh, well, then the in-sector commander was a Bradley commander and he said well hey we need to go back to that house they threw the camera in and we need to raid that to make sure that that's not where they were making that IED because on the footage of the camera it was uh, instructional video on how to make IEDs and then making that IED and then placing it and then blowing us up and um, so he said well hey give me one of your guys you know, we'll ride down into Bradley. That way, if there's an IED or, you know, they placed one in, we get hit into Bradley, less likely we'll get hurt. You know, we'll take the blunt of it. I said, well, heck, <laughs> I already got rigging knocked out. Well, why not send me down there? I said, I'll go. I don't have a problem with that. Um, so, you know, I was the gunner. I had a 240. I had one magazine on me because I didn't have an M4. Well, because he switched out with the driver, I now had the driver's M4 with his magazine and the weapon and the one on my chest. So I get into Bradley, we ride down to the house, we go in, we clear this house, and on the way out, the Bradley commander says, hey, we need pictures of this house showing we didn't destroy it. So as I go in, the Bradley commander you know, hey, I'm going to continue my mission. He got in his Bradley. He left. Well, platoon sergeant rode down to the house with the guys that were in his own V, which was now his driver, the medic, and whatever extra guy that was in there. He drove back to the house. I wasn't in there. I was in the Bradley. Well, Bradley left. I was in the house getting pictures. Platoon sergeant just figured, hey, I got everybody up in my truck. Didn't think about the fact that they just sent me back in to get pictures. So I'm in there taking pictures, and um, you know I can't hear. We just got blown up, so my ears are ringing. And I start taking pictures of the downstairs, and um, start going up the steps to get the upstairs. And as I go up the first flight and hit the landing and turn and start going up the next flight, I take that first step, and all of a sudden a lady comes running and screaming. And uh, you know she has the sound of panic and anger, you know. And, um, then she sees me, and she goes from an upset look to an angry look, and the whole sound of her voice changes, and she starts screaming outside. And I can just tell there's something different, and something was out of place. So I turn and I start walking outside, and you know, forget the upstairs. I'm going outside and see what's up. Um, so as I'm walking outside, uh, there's three guys walking in the gate, you know, and here I'm 20 years old, thinking I have four trucks, four machine guns, you know, 12 to 15 guys, thinking they got my back. Three guys come walking in, arrogant 20 year old, you know, I look at him, throw my shoulders down, look what you looking at, shoulder check the guys I walk past. And that's when I get out in the alleyway and realize, oh my God, there ain't nobody 
nothing but Iraqis packed in this alleyway. They were alone. Yep. There was not a single American out there. And uh, this was just a few months after um, the journalist was beheaded live on TV. So, um, my only thought was put your back to the wall so they can't grab you from behind and do whatever you got to do to make it back. I said I knew the vehicles were facing towards the left. I knew the main road was, you know, behind, you know, the way I was looking coming out. And I knew the main, you know, our base was, you know, about two miles off to the left. So put my back up to the wall and started working my way down to the left. As I was going to the left, they started swarming me to the right. So I turned and I just started hitting people. And uh, I probably broke 12 people or more, ribs, sternums, just hitting them, trying to shove them away from me, keeping them off me. And uh, I finally hit an alleyway and I just took off running. And uh, I ran about two blocks down, hit a T-intersection, looked left, there's nobody, looked right, last vehicle was turning a couple blocks down. And as I turned to run towards him, a single gunshot rang off and it hit the wall by my head and you know, I kind of ducked down and looked behind me and that's when I realized there's a crowd of people chasing me. Uh, they came around the corner and that's when they realized, you know, there's a truck with a 240 pointing at them and all of a sudden they stopped and uh, <clears throat> so, you know, I caught up to them. That was, uh, that was November 16th. <clears throat> so, uh, the whole month of November was just, uh, um, it was hell to put it lightly. So, at the very beginning of the month, we were doing a dismounted patrol. You know, these little boy and girl, I'll never forget them. They were, they were the, they were the shining light. You'd see these these little kids. They were the true innocence in that country. They seen us, they'd blow us kisses, they'd throw us the I love you sign, they'd yell, we love Americans, they'd give us hugs, you know, we'd give them candy, we'd give them water, we'd give them memories, they were just so awesome. And uh, <clears throat> so the end of October, early November, we were doing dismounted patrol about four or five hours into it, walking down the road um, by their house, and all of a sudden they come up, uh, to us, grab her arms and start skipping, swinging her hands like you know kids do, and we hit an alleyway, and they started tugging on us to pull us down the alleyway. So we kind of yank her arms back, kind of frustrated, you know, irritated, really hot, walking for hours. And uh, as we keep on walking, now we come to the front of their house, you know, and they, <clears throat> at this point they grab us with both hands and desperately start you know tugging us into their house into their courtyard so we call for everybody you know pull security push out call for the interpreter to come up uh, kids just keep going boom boom you know with their hands and making a noise and the interpreter comes up and they tell him you know and the interpreter says hey they say there's a bomb in the road you know, you guys are about to walk over it. 
So I call EOD up, and sure enough, uh, there was, you know, three 155 rounds buried right in the middle of the road that we were about to walk right over top of. They uh, saved your life. Saved our lives. Uh, with no disregard to their families and their safety, they didn't even care about that. Wow. Put all their whole family's life at risk to save our lives because they're pure innocence. happy children that just knew no evil just knew happiness then November 11th comes around we were in sector QRF hear a car bomb go off it was probably the biggest explosion I've ever heard in my life mushroom cloud blows three, four hundred meters in the air freaking huge um the radio goes crazy calling for all elements in sector mass casualties we need all all medics um we go flying down there we're first element on scene and uh you know being lead truck we do we go pulling down and and <clears throat> i say uh you come down here and they need you to do a button hook. Pull beside Sergeant Huey, who's laying in the median. So the medic can have security to work on him. Um, we pull there, pull right beside him. Uh, I was given the sectors from the alleyway at the 9 o'clock to the alleyway at the 1 o'clock. And um, so I looked down beside me at Sergeant Huey, who uh, ended up dying from his wounds. I watched him um, watch him fighting for his life, you know. And I watched the medic do everything he can. And uh, they load him up and rush him off to the cash, you know, the aid station to try to get him flown out and um, I just couldn't look at that anymore so I looked up and looked down the alleyway at the 9 o'clock and uh, there's that little boy the um, one that helped save your life yeah yeah he's uh, <sighs> laying in uh, laying in the alleyway um, wasn't moving um piece of shrapnel hit him in the head and, and then I uh, seen um, a blood trail it was going from the little boy it went in front of the Humvee that the V-bid hit and then I looked in front of the vehicle and there's when I seen the little girl crawling out the front of the vehicle reaching for me piece of shrapnel hit her in the stomach and I uh, called for help and um, that's when I was told that not to worry about them I said we have enough casualties of our own we don't got time to worry about them they can take care of their own don't let anybody near them pull security I couldn't look at her anymore because I felt like I failed her 
Um, so I look over at the one o'clock, and that's when I realize there's a guy about to the three o'clock holding a twelve to fourteen year oldish boy. Um, piece of shrapnel hit across his stomach, and this man was holding his child cradled in his arms, holding his insides secure on top of his stomach, trying to get help for his son, walking towards me, crying for help. And uh, once again, I call for help. And that's when I'm told to stop them. That boy could possibly have an IED stuck in him. That man could possibly have a suicide vest on him. Stop him any way you have to. I yelled stop, gave him the sign, pointed my weapon at him. He kept coming, I was told to fire a warning shot. And if I don't, if he doesn't stop then, to engage. And um, I fired that warning shot and I watched that man collapse. And he started just throwing dirt on himself and beating himself and crying and screaming up into the sky. That's when I just realized that I took everything away from that man. I just ripped his whole entire world away from him. All he wanted to do was help his son. And we were in such a messed up situation that we thought that they could have possibly stuck an IED in a child. That's the type of monsters. That is the twisted crap that people don't realize that we were dealing with. That they actually stuck bombs in people, in animals. So as we would drive by, it would just look like a donkey laying on the side of the road or a dog laying on the side of the road. My second deployment, we actually had a human that we found in an alleyway. And as they went up to go help that human to check on him, it blew up. We had an officer sent home that all of his injuries was caused from the body. That's the stuff that nobody knows happens over there. That's the type of stuff, that's the trauma that our veterans are dealing with, that they don't know how to talk about, that they're ashamed to talk about, they're afraid to talk about, they're embarrassed to talk about because people look at them like they're crazy. Um, so that happened on Veterans Day so you know I went from these two kids saved my life end of October early November to Veterans Day watching them die and can't do nothing about it to the 16th me being left in sector to asking my XO when I got back telling him I need to talk to him him saying hey I get to do my job for the first time this deployment I finally get to go out in sector, and he was so pumped. Lieutenant Luke Woolenwaver, so cool. He was one of those officers that always had a smile on his face. You could be in the worst mood ever, and he would see you, and it didn't matter what he had going on, he would stop. He would stop what he was doing, he'd pull you to the side, and he would talk with you. And when you left, you were smiling. He loved his job, he loved his men. He loved his country. And he finally was getting to go out in sector and just do his job. And he asked me if our conversation could wait. 
I said, yes, sir. I said, but just please come find me when you get back. I need to talk to you. And uh, so I go to sleep, and <clears throat> about an hour or so later, maybe, my one of my best friends that I joined the Army with, you know, best friend since we were 12, he wakes me up and says, hey, man, did you hear? I was like, here what? He's like, dude, we just lost our XO. I'm like, which XO? He's like, our XO. I was like, no, dude, no, I, he just went on, he just left. He's like, I know, and he was just killed. And I said, no, dude, I said, like, I literally, seriously, I just talked to him. Like, they, I helped him load his stuff up in the truck. They literally just left the wire, like, not. Can't he, be possible. Yep. I said, not even possible. Like, there's, like, man, I, my towel's still wet for me getting out of the shower, dude. Like, no, it's not, no impossible he said dude they left the gate and as they're leaving the gate they got word that there was a v-bid coming down so they pulled off in alpha sector to pull security and wait for this v-bid and try to find it and he was off on the side of the road pulling security and that v-bid jumped the median pulled right into where they were at and detonated and killed him instantly Um, the 19th I was out of that company and I was sent to the scout sniper platoon and the whole company was turned against me because all the leadership was afraid of what could have happened to their careers because they forgot me because they left me behind they were afraid of what could have happened I was done with it. I was over it. I made it back. I needed somebody to talk to. But I understood the crap happened. I understood we were in war. I understood we were just hit by an IED. I knew everybody's heads weren't where they were supposed to be. I didn't hold a grudge. I was, yeah, I was upset about it. But it was over. That was it. But then they kicked me out of the platoon. And then after I came back, it was like the second or third time I came back. I was told by leadership not to come back. I wasn't welcome there. I was cancer to stay away. And then they told everybody that I chose to leave. So then all my brothers that I fought with and I trained with, they all thought that I chose to leave them. They all thought that I abandoned them. They all thought that I thought I was better than them and went to the scout sniper platoon and thought I was better than them. That's why I didn't come back and see them. So I mean, I struggled with that, and I, I you know, that caused a lot of issues. And uh, so I get back from that deployment, and you know, they told me that, hey, you got PTSD. <laughs> you need to go to this appointment. I'm like, what the heck is PTSD? I don't even know what this stuff is. I go to my leadership, and I'm like, hey, they, they tell me I got this PTSD. What do I do? I don't even know what this is. He says, well, what do you want to do with your career? I said, well, I love, my, I love the Army. I absolutely love what I do. I want to stay in until I'm old and I can't do it no more. He says, well, you better not go to that appointment then. He goes, you do? He says, uh, your career's over. You're non-deployable. They don't need you anymore, and they'll push you out. I said, all right, well, uh, what do I do about these nightmares? What do I do about me not being able to sleep? What do I do about this anxiety and this fear of me going out in public, man? I say, I just, I what? How do I figure this out? Do what I do, man. Just grab some beer on the way home. Which is 
what a lot of people do. Yep. Yeah. They just drink some beer, numb it out till you get tired, you'll fall asleep. Everything will work itself out. You'll be all right. You'll figure it out. Drink water, drive on. You know, that's just uh, what we're taught. Don't don't go get help and try to figure it out. No. no, let's just try to numb it. If you just keep drinking and all that, you know, just, the more you drink, you know, the more likely all your issues will just go away. That's exactly how it works. You know that. You go get yourself a couple cases Such great and advice. yeah, oh, you know, wow. at, at the end of that bottle of Jack, there's a little note at the bottom that says, "Here's the answer to all your problems." Yeah. And unfortunately, I just never found that bottle. It just, it, never I must found have bought, note. no, I, yeah. I must have drank it or, or I just never bought the right bottle. I don't know. But you kept looking. But I kept looking, you know, and so, you know, I, <clears throat> I just, uh, I struggled being around, you know, civilians. I, I, I couldn't be in, in public because I was constantly on edge, you know, it was, constantly searching people looking at hands looking at facial expressions reading people do they look nervous are they scanning people you know it's all the stuff that they teach you you know and especially being in a sniper section you know you look for all the signs you look for the person that's not acting normal you look for the person that is fidgety that is you know skittish that is standoffish that's that's shaky that's sweating that you know, you look for these things. And so here I am back home trying to figure this stuff out, trying to feel normal. And uh, the only normal I knew was was my my fiance, you know. And so I got married and, you know, tried to grab on to anything I could that was normal to get back to life and to the life that I knew, just hoping that it would all go away. Like they said, that, oh, just figure it out, you know. So here I thought there that things would just go away. Um, yeah, a relationship will fix it. Yeah, yeah, jump into a marriage and have kids and, you know, move your wife halfway across the country and, you know, everything will just work itself out. Just keep on drinking and things will disappear, you know. Didn't happen, unfortunately. You know, all it did was make things worse. Yeah. You know, now you don't got no money. Now you got a ticked off wife because you're up drinking all night with your buddies and you didn't pay no attention to her. And when you did go to bed, you're tired or you just came in and passed out. Yeah. You know, the list goes on. Disaster. Yep. And then uh, I got word that we were deploying again. And I felt this relief. That's what you knew. I was excited. I thought, thank God I'm going home where I belong. Yeah. Where I felt comfortable, where I felt normal, where I felt like I could breathe. And uh, then we went to NTC to do our month-long train-up. And uh, that's when my wife called me and told me she quit her job. I said, you did what? <laughs> you, I, I pulled strings to get you that job and you quit? Well, yeah, it, it was hot. Oh, it's hot. Okay, I'm here at NTC with 100 pounds of gear on, sweating in the middle of August. But okay, it was hot. Oh, and I gave away your dog. You what? 
Mm-hmm. Hung up the phone. <laughs> I was mad, furious. Yeah. And she called me back, and I'm going back home. Oh, so you leaving me? Well, no, I'm just going back home while you're training. Um, because I took I took a couple pregnancy tests. Okay, and well, they all said the same thing. Okay, so what's that got to do with any of this? Um, I'm pregnant. Oh, oh, oh wait. <laughs> wait a wait. minute. Hold on. What'd you say? <laughs> huh? Um. She said, "Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna be a dad." <laughs> what? I'm not broken. You know, I seriously. Holy cow! I'm gonna be a dad. Some life changing like, news. Yeah, I'm like, what the crap? And then all of a sudden, it hit me like, holy cow, you're gonna be a dad. You couldn't save those kids. You ripped that man's life away from him with a trigger pull. You couldn't save your brothers. How are you going to be a dad? You can't even be a husband. You can't even go to sleep without being drunk. You can't go out in public. How are you going to do this? Oh my God. What am I going to do? Hmm. Man. Fear God came over me. Complete panic. Yes. Oh, it was, it was. I was never more scared in my life. And then, uh, two days, two days prior to deployment, I uh, found out I was having a son. And I said, "All right, well, that makes me feel comfortable now dying." I'm completely comfortable, satisfied with dying. They can kill me now, and I'm good with it. Because my name's carried on. That's all I care about. The Miller name will not die because I'm having a son. It's better off that I die, though, because I will just destroy this kid's life. Couldn't protect those people. I obviously can't protect him or give him a life because I'm messed up. And if I'm messed up, he's definitely going to be messed up. Is this when, sorry to interrupt you, but mm-hmm. is, had you been thinking about dying or is this when you started to really think about dying? Was it just? Um, well, at this time, I already, I already attempted suicide once. You did, okay. Yeah, this time I took a whole bottle of, of sleep meds and, and uh, drank a, a, almost a half gallon of Jack mm-hmm. um, and actually was... I uh, just got married in October, and I was supposed to go home for Christmas leave to pick up my wife and move her from West Virginia to Colorado, and I uh, was 15 minutes late to formation, and they took my Christmas leave away from me, took my promotable status away from me because I was an E4 promotable, and <clears throat> I had an E4 that crashed at my house that night. Because I was an E4 promotable and he was an E4, they said that it was fraternization, took my promotable status, took my leave, and gave me CQ on Christmas in my class A's. Mm. So I ain't seen my sister in two years now, haven't been home for Christmas in forever, Uh, wasn't going to go home and see my wife, wasn't going to be able to bring her back. I feel like I failed at everything, so you know, I'm going home and I'm going to kill myself. So I took all the sleeping pills I could find at the house and I just started drinking. I drank all the liquor that I had in my house. Called my friends, say, hey man, I'm I'm drunk and I need more liquor. Come pick me up. 
He picked me up, went to the liquor store, got me two more handles, and I don't even remember getting home because I started drinking once I got back in the car. And he thought that was normal. You know, it was the infantry lifestyle. We drank, we partied. Yeah. That's what we knew. And uh, so, yeah, I uh, don't remember getting back home. And I guess I, I, he said that I chugged about half the bottle. And then I filled the rest of the bottle up with Coke, put the lid on it, shook it around a little bit, and opened it up and started drinking Jack and Coke straight from the bottle. And um, I was probably about noon, 1 o'clock or so. And uh, I woke up about 5 o'clock that afternoon, somebody beating on my door. And I went and opened up the door, and here's two Colorado Springs finest standing there saying, Hey, your mom called us. Uh, she's concerned. She's been trying to reach you all day. Mm. You suicidal? Nope. Is there anything in the house that could be dangerous that you could hurt yourself with? No. Why are you bothering me? Well, because your mom thought you committed suicide. Are you all right? I'm fine. My phone was on silent. Do you have anything else? If not, you're good to go. And then I closed the door. And I was furious the fact that I failed at killing myself. And, um... So, you know, that was just the beginning of things. You know, at that point, I was like, I couldn't even kill myself there. You know, I, I just kept on trucking along um you know and then i found out we were deploying again and got excited and you know, i thought yeah, all right well this is it i'll go over there and you know get my chance to be killed over there that'll happen we're going to a bad area here's my chance and uh deployed a second time this time we went to baghdad um, during that that deployment I came home two days prior to my son being born I got home March 14th he was born on the 16th April 1st I was back in country to find out that one of my best friends was killed on the 29th and um, I didn't get home till uh, December 29th and son took his first steps January 1st and I didn't even really wasn't even really able to take it in Mm. Um, you know we had 16 killed my first tour 18 killed my second tour I was in the same unit so I knew almost every one of them and uh, you know when you're over there you don't get time to mourn he could be your best friend he gets killed Guess what? You're going to the ceremony. You do your salute. That's it. Right. Hey. Move on. Get your shit together. Let's go. You. That's it. You're done. Dry your tears. Wipe your face. Let's go. Get out there. You're done. You can't mourn this no more. If you feel sorry for yourself, if you're if you're mourning this at all, you're gonna get other people killed. Forget about it. It's done. It's over. Let's move forward. That's it. Yeah wipe it out forget about it it don't exist anymore it didn't happen move forward if you're angry take it out on the enemy go shoot somebody let's go let's go kick in the door we got bad guys to go take care of that's how we dealt with things and uh 
Yeah, second tour wasn't any easier. Um, you know, the IEDs end up getting crazier. <laughs> you know, they came out of these IEDs, the EFPs that were just blowing through our Humvees like you know, Swiss cheese just melting through us. And um, come back from that deployment, and after being hit by uh, a couple IEDs and a V-bit and some grenades and mortars and RPGs, all that crazy fun stuff, and I said, all right, well, this time you, you know, you got some traumatic brain injuries. Um, you need to go uh, get checked out for that. And you have severe PTSD. You need to go get checked out for that. Go to my leadership. Hey, this is what I'm being told. What do you think? Hey, what you want to do? If you want to stay in, you better just figure things out. Because if you go to those appointments, your career is done. Okay, well, let's figure it out. And uh, no one ever said to you, "Get yourself some help." No. Take care of yourself. No. I just. Uh, no, we uh, we had men. That, I mean, heck, we had almost a whole, we had almost a whole platoon that was just people being chaptered due to drug use of people trying to numb it and just trying to deal with it because there was no help. Yeah. Nobody knew how to deal with it. Right. We were in a war that we, our country never experienced. We were seeing stuff that our country didn't know how to deal with. Um, and you know, it's a learning experience. It's yeah. a process, you know. And, there's no you can't hold it against anybody you know it's it's a journey yeah. for everybody <laughs> so just dealt with it and then they, uh, we we're getting ready to round up for you know, deployment number three this time we were going to Afghanistan um, I came down recruiting orders or actually I got a, a school date for recruiting school and didn't end up getting orders. Was hoping that I wouldn't come down on them because uh, I wanted to go to Afghanistan. I knew we were going to go to a, a pretty exciting area. So I figured, you know what, well, here's another chance. Um, another chance to die? Yeah. I had two deployments and I failed at both of them because I was still alive. So here I am, just numb. Um, I mean, heck, there was a time on my first tour before I even went to the sniper section. So before, we got there in August, so before November 19th, we got a call that there was a oil drum full of uh, 155 rounds and a bunch of nuts and bolts set up to go off. So we go and find this, we're driving down the road and I see it. I yell for it to stop, our driver slams on the brakes, pulls off on the side of the road, and. My NCO says, hey, Miller, get up out, out of the turret, you know, get out to your 5s and 25s and, you know, search the area. I'm going to put, you know, I'll be up in the gun for you. Yeah, whatever, okay. So I get out, do my 5s and 25s, and I'm walking around. I look on the ground, and I'm like, huh, let's look at that piece of shrapnel right there. I said, you know what? I'm going to take that thing home. I said, one day, I said, I'm going to have a man cave. I'm going to hang that thing up on my wall. I said, that'll be a good, that'll be a good drinking story. That right there is what used to kill our people. That right there is what used to rip through our vehicles. 
So I'm sitting there and I'm kicking at it, trying to dig it up. And I'm like, what the crap? Why ain't this thing coming up? Hey, Nick. So come on over here, buddy. Hey, is that strap noise you? Is that an IED? What's he do? Kicks at it? Eh. I don't know. Hey, Cooper. Cooper comes running on over. IED or shrapnel? Eh, I don't know. He kicks at it. Engelman. Engelman comes running over. IED or shrapnel? I don't know. He kicks at it. Pecone. Pecone comes running over. Pecone's like, oh my god. He runs away screaming. <laughs> Lieutenant's like, what? what's going on? Hey, sir, I think we found an IED. Well, get the heck away from it, you idiots. Eh, whatever. Casually just walk away from it. You know? <sighs> wow. Call up EOD. EOD comes out. Three one five five rounds. Standing on top of it. They sit there and they trace the wire. Hear what happened when the Humvee slammed on its brakes, slid over the wire. The tire just severed the wire just enough that it didn't go through. So they traced the wire back. It was on the other side of the berm. Both ends of the wire was wrapped around both ends of the 9-volt battery. And there's a cigarette burning on the ground. Should have been vapor. Didn't care. We were just that numb. And that was only within the first couple months of the first deployment. So, I mean, it just just kept piling on. You know, you see people die and you see... People die from, you know, just getting completely vaporized because of these explosives. And then you see people die where there's an explosion that goes off. And you just see somebody slump over thinking they're knocked out. Just a little little bit of blood running out there. You have no idea. And here, tiniest piece of shrapnel the size of a piece of pencil lead just happened to hit them in the right spot. Yeah. So then, you know, you just get that mindset. It's like, we're walking dead. Right. It's just whenever your time comes up, so you just quit caring. You just figure, you know what, I'm dead anyways. Doesn't matter. Nope. So, so yeah, I mean, back-to-back diplomas, and you just become numb, and you just quit caring. And uh, so then they tell me, oh, you're going to recruiting just before my third deployment. And um, I went clear to the brigade commander. I was like, sir, I am not meant for recruiting. I joined the infantry for a reason. I train these men. I'm meant to go to war. I'm not meant to go sit behind a desk. This is what I'm meant to do. And he says, Sergeant Miller, you've deployed twice. You just had your second child. Go to recruiting. Relax for three years and enjoy your time with your family. And, yeah, okay. Yeah, I really enjoy that. Yep. That's easy for me. <laughs> sure. Recruiting, waking up, leaving my house before 5 o'clock every morning, not making it home till after midnight, Monday through Friday, sometimes on Saturdays. If I had a kid joining the Army on Monday, guess what? I'd have to leave Sunday night to go pick the kid up, take him to the airport. Hmm. So, yeah, there, yeah, there's not much of a life in recruiting. I mean, I would... There would be times that I would literally see a difference in my children from the times I was seeing because there would sometimes be a week or two because I was home. You know, my parents lived right there in town. So, uh, right. you know, I had my mom and dad, or mom and stepdad, my dad and my stepmom, and, you know, my wife's dad. 
So there's three sets of grandparents right there. So almost every weekend, my kids would go to a different, you know, stay with a different grandparent, spend time. So there'd be times that I wouldn't see them for a week or two. And I'd see them and I'd be like, holy cow, it's getting bigger. Your hair's longer. What in the world's going on? It's like, gee whiz, you know, this is ridiculous. And, um, you know, I was in recruiting for three years and I would go to school and the office ladies like, oh, I'm st- we look forward to you coming every week because you come in and you just got this bright smile and you're, we just were so excited to see you because you're just so happy all the time. Yep, I'm just so happy to mm. be here. I was suicidal every single day. Every day in recruiting, I wanted to die. Every semi. I just think, you know, just pull in front of it and get over. That's it. Done. I just couldn't bring myself to do it. I couldn't become a statistic. I did not want my family knowing me as a statistic the rest of their lives. So I excelled in recruiting. Became one of the best. They were begging me to stay. I couldn't. I knew if I stayed, I would be a statistic. Yeah. Instead, I had to find a unit that was deploying so I could be remembered as a hero and I got killed overseas. And uh, so I left recruiting and went to Fort Stewart where I trained with my guys for a year preparing to go to Afghanistan. And a month before uh, deploying, I ruptured a disc in my back and that's when they stopped me and made me the rear DNCYC and had to have back surgery. And um, that just led to a downward spiral and the drinking became worse and then the pills became worse because they were like candy at that point, pain pills, muscle relaxers, anxiety pills, anti-depression pills, Ritalin for the brain injuries or the ADD, ADHD, which they diagnosed me with first instead of the brain injuries. Um, you know, and the uh, anti-anxiety medication and sleep medication. You know, so all this stuff on top of the drinking. And there'd be times I wouldn't remember how I got to work. Uh, there'd, be, there'd be weeks of work that I wouldn't remember what happened, what I did how I got there, who I dealt with. Mm. I just wouldn't even remember. Just blackouts. Yep. And uh, one night, you know, my wife came out in the garage and I'm sitting out there half drunk with my pistol sitting on my workbench. And uh, that's when she said, she goes, you know what? She goes, who cares about the Army? The Army does us no good if you are not here. She goes, your kids deserve better. She goes, I deserve better. She goes, but most importantly, you deserve better. She goes, look what you have given this country. Look what you are willing to do for this country. She goes, go get the help that you deserve, that you have earned. She goes, go get fixed. We have your back. We're here. We'll support you. We need you. I went and I got help and uh, did 35 days inpatient, came back October 1st, got a call October 11th from the brigade surgeon saying that I was being 
submitted for the medical evaluation board. And I said, well, I'll fight it. I said, because I'm, I'm good. I just did 35 days inpatient. I'm on top of the world. I am ready to take it on. I'm good. I'm solid. I'm not getting out. I'll fight it. She says, well, good luck. Um, because the president has just announced he's downsizing. He's cutting 10,000 E6s. And uh, I've looked through your records. You got a lot wrong with you, and I just made you non-deployable. So guess what? Unfortunately, that means we really don't need you anymore, and you'll be one of the first ones cut. So you can either get a severance pay of sixty, seventy thousand dollars, one-time pay, and good luck, enjoy your life, or you can take my option. More than likely, you'll end up getting a hundred percent because you got a lot wrong with you. And then go ahead and just enjoy the rest of your life. You've earned it. Wow. So, I went ahead and went through it and was medically retired, was given 100%, and uh, was told, congratulations, you've earned it. Here's 100%. Go enjoy the rest of your life and do nothing but spend time with your family. I couldn't do nothing. I went from being surrounded by men that I loved, that were willing to die for me, that I was willing to die for, that I could just look at them and tell there was something wrong, they could just tell something was wrong with me, and we could just talk and deal with it and work through it and figure things out, to where now I'm a civilian, nobody has any idea what it is I'm dealing with. When I do talk about these things, they look at me like I'm crazy. They look at me like I'm just, you know, talking about a movie. Um, and I couldn't talk to my family because I didn't want to put that, I didn't want to put the burden on them. You know, I didn't want them worrying about me. Um, and you know, and I thought by me sharing and telling them that the stuff I was dealing with, I thought that I would, I would warp, you know, their mind. I thought I'd be putting these images in their heads. Um, but one of the things I learned, you know, in my therapy was if you don't, talk to your loved ones you're leaving their imagination to figure out what's going on and unfortunately the imagination is endless and it will run wild and they will think of the absolute worst imaginable things out there and they'll never understand they'll never be able to help and help you work through this so I started talking to my wife and I started sharing and opening it up my wife didn't hear any stories about any of my stuff until 2013. Wow. Um, Unless I was drunk around the fire with my brothers. Yeah. And she would overhear stuff. Uh, But it wasn't until then, until we actually started communicating, you know, conversing back and forth. Um, We started making a list of my triggers, you know, different things that would, you know, set me off. I'd start letting her know, you know, when I would start feeling anxious, you know, she would start taking notes when she would notice me go from a good mood to a hundred, you know, she would sit there and analyze it and figure out, you know, what happened or she would take notes of what the situation was going on. And then when I would cool down, she would talk to me about it and we would discuss it together and you know I would fill her in okay this is what happened and a lot of times that that talk back and forth 
what a lot of times get me to think about it and work through it and identify like, oh, okay, all right, yeah, now that makes sense. This is what happened. I smelt this or I heard this or I seen this or, you know, this happened, whatever it was. And so we started identifying these things. And, uh, you know, now having my wife, who a lot of times would start identifying and start noticing me having, you know, these anxiety attacks, you know, the the leg shaking, the digging at the fingers, the, the, the faster breathing, you know, the standing, the pacing, the scanning the room, putting right. the back to the corner. She starts noticing those things. And instead of causing a scene, Simply, you know, come maybe just throw her arm around me and say, "Hey, I, I, I forgot, I forgot we, you know, have somewhere. I forgot this at the house. Hey, you know, I think we gotta go. Whatever it is, just to break up the scene, to pull you so, out of that situation. <clears throat> exactly. That's what somebody. That's what I overheard today, uh, and what I was alluding to earlier. You gave you gave people this morning some some wonderful, tangible ideas. And so I know somebody was talking about, because PTSD, it doesn't just affect you, right? You know, it affects your, it impacts your whole family. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course, y- your wife. So, you know, it's, it's the two of you figuring, well, the whole family figuring out a solution and how to deal with it as a family. And so you figured out ways to to deal with your PTSD and so I love that idea of making a list of triggers and your wife taking notes and sometimes noticing before you do because when you get in it and when you start to panic you get really overwhelmed by probably by your senses and and emotions and so she kind of knows to to gently maybe nudge you out of a situation or or to give you um, Mm -hmm in order to say something to you to to kind of help help get you get you out of that or, or to remove you out of something before it does escalate and and so I think people really appreciated that this morning because it is a partnership it's not something that you really can do on your own it's just going to take the two of you so that was really great advice yeah it's um yeah when you start going down that I mean We were living every day, life and death. You're in the zone. You have to be. So when that stuff starts reliving, you space out. You are now back in the fight. You are now focused on whatever it was that has triggered you. You're now reliving that. You're not aware of what's going on around you. Right. You know? And that's why I thank, thank God, my wife, oh my goodness. I, I can't even, I can't even pay my wife back. God, she's a freaking godsend. What's her name? Allison. Yeah, Allison she's, sounds she's amazing. Freaking, she's an angel. Um, she stuck by my side when I didn't want to stick with myself. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how. I don't know how. I don't know why. I think she's crazy. Um, so, <laughs> um, but thank I think God. she loves you. <laughs> she, right? she definitely, yeah. she's got to love me uh, to still be around. And I, I thank God every day I, um, because I wouldn't be here without her. Yeah. Um, 
You know, she reminds me that this is a journey. You know, even now, my God, you know, I I have been out of the army since August the 14th. You know, so I, I got out medically retired in August of 14. I'm now surrounded by civilians who don't understand. And before Thanksgiving hit of 2014, I'm at the end. I got a gun in my hand in my head and I'm done. Um, reliving nightmares of me being left behind. Uh, still drinking. Still drinking. Medication. Medications, whatever I can do to just be numb. And uh, so, yeah, now um, I, if there was a round in my chamber that that morning, I wouldn't be here, you know, and it's four o'clock in the morning. So I'm sitting there thinking like, who in the heck do you call at four o'clock in the morning? Nobody. Uh, you don't want to be a burden to anybody at four o'clock in the morning. Well, what's the army say? Drink water, drive on, suck it up, figure it out. You got it. So put the pistol away because the only thought that went through my head at that time was if you rack around this chamber, it's going to wake your wife up. She's going to ask questions and you're going to have to talk. The thought never even went through my mind of what would have happened if there was around that chamber. I didn't even see, I, I wasn't able to see past the fact that I just wanted to sleep. Mm-hmm. I just wanted the nightmares to end. I just wanted the pain to end. I just wanted to be normal. I just wanted comfort. I just wanted to stop. I didn't think about the fact that I was going I would have completely destroyed my wife's life. My son who was sleeping upstairs above me. My daughter who was across the hallway from him. Waking up to their mother screaming and crying after they hear a gunshot. That never went through my head at all. And that kills me now because I think of that and I'm like, oh my God. Thank you, Jesus, for there not being around that chamber. Because that was just a speed bump. That was seconds of my entire life a hiccup that's it and I was ready to quit and uh, so you know I I went and sat on the couch and every time I tried to deal with it I just started hyperventilating and I would just start melting down and so finally I called the VA and uh, I was on the phone I said look I said I about killed myself this morning I said, I'm hurting. I need help. I don't know what to do. Uh, I said, I feel like I failed. I feel broken. I feel lost. Um, I just, I don't know. I said, I need help and I need a bad. She says, well, are you suicidal right now? And I said, well, no. Right now, I'm on the phone with you reaching out for help. I said, but another <laughs> night like last night, I said, I'm promising you I'm done. Okay, let me put you on hold real quick. Oh, All right, I thank you. I cringe when I hear that. Uh, and then they come back from an appointment for Friday, two days later. Awful. And I said, "Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for not giving me one day to call bullcrap, but two. I appreciate that." And I hung up the phone, and they didn't call back to check on me. Nothing. Nobody came to check on me. Nothing. Yeah. 
and uh, seconds after I hung up the phone I get a text message from an old lieutenant that I served with my second deployment he was the mortar platoon leader uh, while I was a sniper team leader and um, he messaged me he's like hey I got this got this project I'm doing at Georgetown for my masters if you're interested in participating give me a call and um, that call he could tell there's something wrong with me he asked me if everything was alright I told him everything was not alright I was failing and I felt like I was broken and he came flat out and asked me he said man are you thinking about killing yourself and all I could do was laugh I said dude I said if my pistol was loaded this morning I said we would not even be talking right now I said, so yes, I have been thinking about killing myself. And uh, so we talked, and that call turned into a six-hour call where he gave me a different outlook on life. He said, why'd you serve? I said, well, I watched 9-11 happen, and I was furious, and I wanted to serve my country. I wanted to protect the ones that I loved. He said, all right, well, while you served, he said, uh, the government paid you, right? I said, yes, sir. He said, all right, well, when the government told you you couldn't do it anymore, he said, um, is the VA paying you? I said, yeah, they're, they're paying me. He said, all right, well, now look at it as the VA is paying you to take care of your brothers and your sisters. He said, because your story is going to save lives and it needs to be told. I said, man, I ain't got a story. I said, I did my job and that's it. I said, my coolest stories, I said, I was on missions with Chris Kyle and I said, other than that, I ain't got a story. I said, the story of those that didn't make it back. He says, yeah, but you made it back. You're here. They didn't make it back. You are the one that's here to tell their story. If you're not here to tell their story, who is? He says, your story's going to save lives. We need to share this. So whatever. So, like always, you know, procrastinated. Didn't want to write my story. Was still living in my sorrows. And um, finally, my mother-in-law was like, hey, you know, I see you're hurting. I'd like for you to come to church with me this weekend. I said, why? <laughs> why would I want to do that? Exactly. Why would I want to go to church? There is nothing up there. Otherwise, there would not be all this misery going on. He wouldn't let me see all that. It wouldn't all, all this crap be going on. He would have let my friends come home or he'd have let me die and my friends come back. That way I wouldn't be suffering. She says, please, just give it a trial. Come this weekend. I said, you know what, I'll come. If it shuts you up about this, I said, I'll be there. She, I said, it's one weekend. She goes, it's all masking, it's just one. I said, fine. I go that weekend and I'm sitting there in church and I'm mad and I'm like, ticked off that I'm even there that she convinced me to go and um, and I just you know I just started going off I started just, like, just cussing out God yelling at him blaming him just arguing and fighting and questioning him why and then I challenged him you know what if you're really up there I said just strike me down dead right now just end it and as like somebody was talking right in my ear, I heard clear as day, quit feeling sorry for yourself. 
Look at everything that I have pulled you through. What good is it to have an answer to a secret if you keep it a secret? Share your struggles and hardships to give others strength and courage to pull forward. Hmm. Well, it looks like I need to go home and write my story. Still procrastinated. <laughs> it still took me months to write. I would start writing, I would start crying. And uh, wow. finally end up getting it written, send it off to my buddy. He comes back and he's like, holy freaking crap, dude. He's like, I freaking, I have known you for years. He's like, and I had no idea you've had any of this stuff going on. Because we were told not to deal with it. We were told to just let it go. Figure it out. This is the story that I read that you sent me. Um, the human cost of war? Yes. Mm-hmm. That's the stuff. Can you tell people how to? Yeah, find you just uh, if you just Google the human cost of war, uh, story of Justin Miller. It's pretty um, amazing. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, you know, he he ended up getting it published. He sent me an email. He's like, "Hey, he's like, we're live." Um, he goes, "You know, Twitter's ruined our nation of not wanting to read more than 500 words." He said so. You know, expect three to four hundred people to read this," he said. "But you know, hey, three to four hundred people. Yes, you know, three to four hundred lives you've made a difference in. Mm-hmm. Might so, help somebody. Yep. So I'm like, whatever. You know, I wrote it. It's out there. Who cares? I look back at it now and I'm like, you know what? That was my suicide note. I wrote my story because I wanted everybody to know why I killed myself. Hmm. I wanted the world to know why Justin Miller." quit why he couldn't take it anymore and uh, I reached out to him the next day I was like dude how's it going he's like man you're not going to believe this he said but we already have over a thousand readers and by the end of the week we were over five thousand readers and then I started getting messages hey I read your story and I wanted to thank you because I now know what my loved ones are going through or Hey, I read your story, and uh, thank you, because I now know I'm not alone. That got me through the night. And that's when it hit me. Holy cow. Maybe my story is going to make a difference. And um, then a guy named Ryan Pereira read it and was like, Hey, guys, not enough is being done for our veterans. He goes, and I have this app idea. I want to give it to you guys. I don't want anything bored. I just want to be along for the ride to see the difference that it makes. Um, his idea originally was like Yelp for veterans where no matter where you're at, you could log on and find a vet center or a VA or clergy or whatever um, way you could get help. Uh, but while doing research, we found out that when most veterans decide to take their lives, they usually do it within the first five minutes. Yeah. So we're like, you know, we don't have time for them to get on a nap, try to find a place, call them, be sent to voicemail, put yeah. on hold, schedule an appointment for two days later. Two days later, yeah. You know, it was like, we need something that's instant. And I said, and there's so many people out there that fear reaching out for help for the fear of losing their career. Mm-hmm. I was like, we need something that's instant and we need something that's anonymous. These people need to feel completely comfortable of opening up and uh so that's where uh, the objective zero foundation came to life 
Um, we came up with the name Objective Zero because our objective is zero suicides. Yeah. Uh, and so we came up with the Objective Zero app. Um, it's in the Apple uh, and Google Play Store. Um, it's free to download, free to use. Uh, we cover all the cost on the back end, so you know nobody using the app will ever have to worry about any cost. Um, and uh, it's it's ran by completely volunteers. People are there because they care. Yeah. Not there because they're there to get a paycheck. They're there because they care. These are people that are not just saying thank you for your service. These are people who are saying thank you for your service. Talk to me about it. Let me hear about it. What are you going through? What struggles are you dealing with? Let's talk about this. How can I help you out? Is there anything that I can do that can help you get through this? And then we help them out, connect them to resources and you know different programs that are available that are free or you know highly discounted for our, our military community. Um, so our app is available for veterans, um, all service members, all of their family members and caregivers. It allows instant and anonymous connection in a time of need by a touch of a button via voice, video, or text. Uh, app has been out uh, this December will be two years, and uh, we currently have over 6,000 people using the app. We have over 1,100 people that are trained in suicide prevention that are there to answer the phone. That's amazing. Thank Does you. thinking about suicide ever go away? You know, um, it's, I don't want to say it goes away. Um, there's, I mean, there's always going to be your ups and your downs. Um, right. You know, I we came up with this app idea, you know, and I was on cloud nine. I'm like, holy cow, we have this freaking amazing technology that's going to save lives it's free it's awesome we need this in our nation you know we're going to get all this support this is going to be so cool you know and we just we weren't getting the support that i was expecting or hoping for and uh, i began to spiral again and once again you know i just hit rock bottom you know, I was back to drinking, back to trying to just numb everything, just trying to hope that eventually everything would just kind of figure itself out. Um, and uh, then I thank God I found this program called Save a Warrior. You know, if you want to look into it, it's free for veterans and first responders. Um, Savealwarrior.org. Uh, it's free to go to. All you gotta do is, you know, pay for your travel to get there. Uh, but I promise you, it's life life changing. Um, it literally gave me my life back. They help you identify the root cause of your trauma. It's uh, best described as a war detox. You know, mm. wow. it was. Uh, I just can't. I just can't brag enough about that program. Jake Clark. Uh, 
hags. There's just so many people out there that have lived through this crap, have struggled, have been in this foxhole, ready to die, been in the darkest moments, and were pulled out by other warriors that have figured their way through it. And now they are wounded healers that are sharing their life experiences, that are being vulnerable, opening up about their worst experiences to help others work through them. Um, and you know, and that that uh, got my life back on track. Um, at that point, you know, that was last October. Uh, at that point, we had less than a thousand people total on the app, including users and ambassadors. Yeah. Um, and uh, like I see this last October has been a year of sobriety, and now we have over six. I was going to ask people. you, were you able to stop drinking? And yeah, that is incredible. And we talked a little bit about that earlier today. I was curious, mm-hmm. and you know, well, I love. I love wounded healers. I love that word. And when we were talking about the drinking earlier and I was asking, you know, what helps you and you were talking about uh, service work, you know, service work, helping others. And there's nothing more powerful. You know, therapy's great, Mm -hmm. of course, but there's nothing more powerful than helping, helping someone or being helped by someone that you can really identify with that's been through something similar that you can yeah that you can identify with and there's nothing more powerful than that and so yeah wounded healers that's such a powerful powerful word yeah they um so in in save a warrior you know one of the things they teach is uh you know the best way to help others is to help yourself yes you know if you don't have your stuff together how you know when you're flying a plane what do they tell you if the oxygen mask drop put yours on first first. if you don't have your stuff together how can you help somebody else yeah so i started i got my stuff together um it's it's a it's work it's it not work. just a, it, it's not a miracle. It's not a light that you just flip a switch and all of a sudden it goes away. Yeah. It's not. I wish it was that easy. Believe me, I, would, I would right. wish I had that It'd answer. Nice. <laughs> but, uh, but no, it's a journey and it's a process and it's work and there's multiple methods and the more, the more tools that you have in your kit, the more people that you have in your tribe that understand that have been through these programs that have worked through their own trauma and know how to relate the more of those you have the easier it is to climb out of those holes yeah so life is like a roller coaster you got your ups and your downs you need to learn to ride the highs and when you're in the lows you need to learn to identify and reach out to somebody to help pull you out of that as fast as you can right. you know i once again i was living on cloud nine here i am i'm coming to massachusetts and i'm coming to speak to over a thousand airmen you know to help change lives and motivate people and give them you know that fire back and 
going to New York to be on a freaking Today Show next and week, next right? Next week for Veterans yeah. Day, and I'm like, man, this is I got things going on, you know. Life, Life is, is great, good. yeah. And uh, and then I woke up one day, and I just from the time I opened my eyes, I wanted, I was just angry. I was so mad, and I had no idea why. I just was ticked off the world. I wanted to break everything. I wanted to burn every relationship down around me. I wanted to fight with my wife. I wanted to get rid of my kids as fast as possible onto the bus. I wanted to find anybody I could to fight with, and I couldn't figure out why. But thank God I had my Saw Brothers. I have a group text. I got on there. I sent a group text to my brothers, hey guys, I do not know why, but I want to burn everything around me down. I want to destroy every relationship I have. I'm struggling. Help. Threw my phone down, figured, you know what, we'll see. And then all of a sudden, bing, 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 it's like my phone just started going off left and right. Bro, I love you. Hey, we got you. What's going on? Let's talk about this. Give me a call. I'm calling you right now. Phone's going off. Hey. Hey, brother. It's Justin, man. Let's talk about this. What's going on, bro? Man, you are one of the stronger ones. You reaching out set the example for the rest of us, so you need to think about that. Mm -hmm. You just showed the rest of us that it's okay to reach out even when you look like you have things going on. You've just showed us that even when you look like you got things going on, that things can still come crashing down. Right. It happens. That is part of life. That's why it's a journey. You know, miracles come from crap. <laughs> you never have this freaking awesome moment and then a miracle come from an awesome moment. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> you know? That's very true. You know, these inspirational stories come from these really tough times. You know, these tough times where people didn't quit, where people kept going, people reached out, people were vulnerable and told their stories. People lived to help others, lived for others. You're given one life, yeah. one chance to make a difference. Just the fact that you're alive is a miracle. The fact that you woke up this morning is a miracle. All you got is today. Can't worry about yesterday. Can't change it. Can't worry about tomorrow because it's not guaranteed. Yeah. You know, I read a book. If you're dealing with depression, it's because you're worried about yesterday. If you're dealing with anxiety, it's because you're worried about tomorrow. Right. And I had an old lady that told me one day, said, you got your left leg and yesterday and your right leg and <laughs> tomorrow you're pissing away today. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, it's true. Yeah. Today is what you got to focus on. If you focus on today, you pave the path for tomorrow. So right now is what you got to take care of. Take care of yourself today. Take care of those around you. Set small goals. First alarm, get up out of bed. As soon as the alarm gets up, get out of bed, stand up and stretch. There you go. You just accomplished your first goal. Make your bed. Pull your sheets up, your blanket up. There you go. You made. There's goal number two. You set yourself up for a successful day right off the bat. You've accomplished two simple goals within the first 30 seconds of waking up. 
now I set myself an easy goal. If I can just go every day and if I can make one person smile, then I did my job. I made one person's day better. Yeah. And if I can go to bed at night and I can say, you know what? I made that person smile. Okay, I can lay my bed down and I can go to bed easier. Yeah. Well, I love, you know, your, your story is so much about connection and, and belonging. Well, you know, you talked about all your deployments and, and how you felt like you belonged and then, and, and now through your, through your struggles, uh, trying to figure out how you belong and then now finding belonging, you know, when you went to, um, Save a warrior, and now with objective zero, uh, uh, objective zero, and and again, that's what we were talking a lot about this morning in our stand down, and in our small groups, uh, trying to get people to connect and to belong. And so after you spoke again, when I went around to the groups, I really heard people you know, allowing themselves to be more vulnerable and, and sharing things about themselves. They were talking about how they cope and some of the things that they struggle with, giving suggestions uh, around uh, how, to, how to reach out to each other and, and how to increase that sense of belonging. And again, I really thank you for for giving them some concrete <clears throat> suggestions around that. Um, yeah, I just, any final thoughts? Again, we've been talking with Justin Miller. I encourage you to, to look um, at the story that he wrote, The Human Cost of War, the Justin Miller story. And to down, I downloaded his app on my phone. It's, it's a wonderful app. Um, even as um, a provider, and a civilian, I was able to look on your app and find some resources mm -hmm. that I'll be able to pass on to um, some of the service members that come in and see me. So that was really, really helpful. Uh, any any final words? I mean, you've gave, given some great <laughs> suggestions, so I appreciate it. But uh, yeah, any final words that you would like to say? Um, yeah, there. I mean, there's there's no one program. There's no one resource. One size fits all. Exactly. Um, I mean, I've been through Save a Warrior. I was invited through the Mighty Oaks Warrior Program, which is another amazing program that's a week long. Um, Chad Robichaud, he's a MMA fighter. Um, he actually started the program. It's completely free for veterans. They have one for first responders. And then on top of that, once the veteran goes through, they also have one that the spouse can go through. So they help the spouse understand um, the traumas because they know that the, the veteran's trauma or the service member's trauma also transitions over to the spouse. So they make that available. Um, you know, then you have PTSD Foundation of America, which is another amazing program. Um, offers up to six months of a complete transition, teaching all your basics, your finance, your budget, um, resume building, you know, how to get a job, basically get you a job before you leave. Mm. Um, so all these programs are just ways to build your arsenal of tools to survive 
you know, tools okay. to help your other brothers and sisters that you served with that when they call you struggling or you see them spiraling on social media or disconnecting that you can say, hey, I've been to this, dude. Please give this one week a try. That's it. All I'm asking is a week. And are these resources on your on your the, app? Yep, okay, absolutely. They're all on the app. They're okay. all on the app. Um, when you download the app on the bottom right corner, there's a resource yeah. tab that uh, is full of free resources that are there that are just dying for people to use. Great. So take advantage of them. Um, I need your guys' help. Uh, we had a goal of having like 7,000 people by Veterans Day is what, you know, the rest of the organization says, hey, if we have 7,000 by Veterans Day, that's great. Not me. My goal, I want 10,000 using the app by the end of Veterans Day. So if you're listening to this, get on it. Get on it, please. <laughs> right now we're losing 20 veterans a day. Yeah. Over 7,000 a year. That's ridiculous. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Out of the 20 a day, 14 of them are not using the VA. So the VA, we've partnered with the VA. So we have access to the six out of those 20. But the 14, they're not using it. We need your help. We need people that are listening to help. The family members, the friends, the people they know that have served. We need you to tell these people about this. So please share, push us on social media. Some of you kids have a lot of followers. A lot of the younger generation understand this social media better than I do. I'm still stuck oh, yeah. on the whole Facebook stuff. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, yes. Um, so thank you so much, Justin. We've really enjoyed having you here today. Uh, I know as I walked around with Justin and when he finished speaking today, there were just lines of people um, waiting to talk to him. So we really appreciate the impact that he made on the wing and and with our, our members today. So, and especially with our, our young airmen that, you know, some of them that haven't even gone off to basic yet. Um, we were having lunch at the DFAC today and yeah, some of our young airmen came up to you and they were just, you could just tell. I mean, people were very, very moved by your story. So thank you. Thank you for making a huge difference. We appreciate having you. Yeah, thank you. You're very it welcome. Was very, very amazing experience. It's awesome. Thank you. Mm -hmm.